Luke chapter 15. Um, I hope you guys enjoy that new song. In this bright city, there's no need for sun, only the glory of our God. Um, uh, our songs this morning, I hope um, sin and repentance has not become such a foreign concept that the songs made you feel uncomfortable this morning. Um, I think uh, we are in desperate need in our culture and in our church culture in our life to be reminded of um, our desperate need for grace and for God's kindness. And I want to talk today largely about how we have forgotten uh, uh, that which many of us were saved from. We've forgotten that. Um, so much so that uh, we almost stand in front of God saying that we deserve what we have the good that we have, the kindness in the gospel that we have. And, and, uh, and if we're not careful, it, that can become, we can begin to believe our own publicity, that we are worthy in some manner. Um, but indeed we're not. And, um, I know that's not the popular message, and I know that that wouldn't be uh, proclaimed on TV by too many preachers, but um, it's the Bible's message. That if we forget what we were saved from, and we forget the magnitude and the glory and the majesty and the miraculousness of our redemption. And uh, so, with that said, let's read Luke 15. Many of you have heard this. You've probably heard the story of the prodigal son preached maybe a number of times. But we're going to try and go through the entire chapter of Luke 15. Uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning, uh, I just want to let you know kind of this how this works um, we're going to read the passage, and basically I'm just going to explain it and how it applies to our lives and try and draw out some implications for us. Uh, the goal today is not for me to say a bunch of cool things. Uh, the goal today is for us to understand the Word of God. Uh, I don't believe that I have anything to add that will guarantee your sanctification today. But I believe the Word has everything to add and guarantees your sanctification if you will take care to hear as Jesus has implored us, employed us to do. Um, so with that said, let's read Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 32. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. He's, he goes on, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, 
There's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now this older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word come to life to us today. That uh, we would see it, this glorious truth that it is. Father, these truths that we talk about today from your word that they would, uh, Father, pray that they would not just get lodged into our brains somewhere, but that they would first be understood and then they would be loved as that truth drops into our hearts. Father, I pray that we do not become a people that can hear the word and walk away unchanged, but instead we are a people who hear the word and walk away greatly changed. Father, I pray that we would submit ourselves to the proclamation of your word this morning. And Father, we give you glory for the results. 
and we trust you with those. Uh, we love you. We know, we're, we know you're good and you're kind. Thank you for this time. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So as we begin to work through this text, I want us to consider for just a few moments the way we talk about someone coming to faith in Christ. Can we talk about someone being redeemed? I just want to kind of reflect on this for just a moment. Because I think this passage kind of might twist that around for us a little bit as we work through this text. We say often, well, that person, they found God. Okay? We also say, well, they were looking for God, and, you know, their God was, and he, he found him. Or how about this? God was knocking on the door, and he finally opened the door, and this person let Jesus in. Or maybe, maybe a little more familiar is, you know, Jesus won't knock down the door. He is a, he's a gentleman, right? Is that, any of you had grown up hearing some of those phrases? But Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Why won't you let him come in? What's interesting is if you read Revelation 3.20, it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus knocking on your door for salvation. Actually, it has absolutely nothing to do. The idea of Jesus knocking on your door is, uh, in, in, in reference to salvation is absolutely foreign to Scripture. Uh, it's not there. It's interesting that I think as I've reflected, at least in the tradition that I've grown up in, that every time we talk about someone being saved, you know, oh, they walked an aisle, they said a prayer, uh, they found God, so on and so forth, it, it seems, if, as, if we read this text, it seems quite contrary to the way it's presented in this text. It seems quite man-centered, um, that it's man who is doing the searching, it's man who is doing the finding, it's man, you know, it's kind of like God, kind of this picture of, of religion that I've grown up in, uh, specifically more Baptist-like. It's kind of like we just, we kinda, God's kind of sitting there, and man's kind of wandering around, and finally his heart clicks, and there's God, right? But I think you can already begin to see the tension there, because that's not what's going on in Luke 15. This is not the picture that Jesus paints. It is not. Man is wandering around and finally gets a good heart, and then goes, oh, yes, I need God. There we go. Uh, but instead... There's someone quite different that's doing the searching. But it seems so man-centered, as if, if man has every ability already possessed, and all he needs to do is initiate this conversation with God. It's like God has done what he can, and now with fingers crossed, he anxiously awaits our decision. I mean, that's how we talk about salvation today. Just God's done all he can, and he's just standing at the door knocking now. However, in these passages, again, it's quite different. Notice today, who is the one seeking those who need redemption? Who are the ones finding? Is the coin saying, ah, I will finally found the person who lost me? Right? No. Is the sheep wandering around going, ah, ah, there he is, I found him. Right? No, he doesn't. Who is it that comes running to the son? It's the father. Someone quite different than now, even in that, I'll, give, I'll, I'll address the caveat just briefly, but yeah, clearly the sun, something clicks in the sun. Something changes. And I have to say from the very beginning that in Luke 15, we don't see the full picture of the gospel in Luke 15. He doesn't reveal all the parts, if you will, to salvation truth. But what we get here is clearly that the Father is the one embracing, searching, that wants the Son welcomes him home. 
So, in this track, so that kind of want to get that out there in the beginning. Now, I want to get us back on track, so I just want to kind of set that thought right inside your mind, and then now we're going to kind of proceed with the text. But as we've been working through Luke, we've gone from Jesus displaying who he is, to then the disciples finally going, we believe that you're the Messiah. And then once Peter kind of makes that confession, now Jesus begins to turn physically and spiritually towards the cross. So now he's on a journey literally, physically, towards Jerusalem and spiritually towards Jerusalem. And he's bringing his disciples, as Jesus is living his life, he's bringing his disciples saying, this is how you follow me. This is what it means to be a follower of me. So we must ask the question, what does Jesus want from his followers? We've been asking this question now for a few weeks, and we've been building this kind of this picture of what this follower of Jesus looks like. You know, many people think that they are Christians, but when you measure their life up next to the follower that Jesus describes, it doesn't seem to match. Now, I mean, that's no foreign concept to all of us. We all think that everyone else around us in the Christian life is a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, We just don't tend to look in the mirror often enough. You know, in our American culture, we've created our own traditions that make us feel Christian but oftentimes just help us sin more because we live a moral life apart from God, essentially building up our own self-righteousness. So what are some things just in reflection that maybe, that, uh, maybe help us think that we're Christians? Well, I, I, how about this? I go to church every time the doors are open. Right? We talked about this last week. I go to church every time those doors are open. Uh, well, our doors are open like all the time. Um, but if you come in here, it might be a gymnastics facility. Um, or how about this? Well, I listen to K-Love, right? That makes me a Christian, right? Now, now I'll, I'll tell you, this is a little bit of an average tale, I admit, but like, I have heard people talking about their coworkers, and they say, and I say, well, are they a follower of Jesus? And, well, you know, they've always got like, Christian music's playing in their cubicle at work. And, come on! Like, I think Satan listens to that stuff. I'm just kidding. How about this? I don't say cuss words. That makes me a Christian, right? I don't say curse words. So that's what makes me a Christian. And not, not in this place, but how about I wear a suit and tie to church? That makes me a Christian. No offense if your grandma and grandpa wear a suit and tie. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I have one suit. That's it. It's black. I use it for funerals and weddings. And uh, other than that, you don't get me in a suit. It's not comfortable. Anyways. How about we sing songs that have passion instead of those dry old songs? That's what makes us a Christian, right? So we're part of a church that sings passionate songs instead of those dry old songs. That's what makes us a Christian, right? That's what makes us feel good about our faith. We do those things. Or how about we meet in homes, you know, instead of in a dry cinder block building for Sunday school. That's what makes us Christians, right? To feel feel like our Faith is justified. Or how about we set up and tear down every Sunday for church? That makes me a Christian. Right? Last one, I serve in the nursery. That's what makes me a Christian. Now, all these things are great and surely can be indicative of following Jesus. Again, I'm not knocking on Grandma and Grandpa's suit, okay? Uh, I grew up in, in that, and I would be very willing to wear a suit and tie today. Uh, I would just get really hot. Um, but... Uh, 
There's nothing wrong with that. And that surely some of these things can be indicative of someone who follows Christ. But for so many people, they call themselves Christians, and clearly uh, there's, there's something missing. There's something missing. I mean, we've even had, as a church, people who've claimed to follow Christ in our midst. That given some time, fruit has just displayed that they were not followers of Christ. And that's sad. It's unfortunate. So why? So what is it that Jesus demands? What is it that he is looking for? And that's what we've been looking through this book of Luke. What does it look like to follow Jesus to the cross? What does it look like to, call, fall, to carry the cross walking next to him? Now we know that first and foremost, believers, those who follow Jesus, believe who he is. They believe that he's the son of God. That he came in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins. Now today, we're going to talk about how a follower of Jesus should relate to three different people. Three different kind of categories of people that I think we see here in the text. The, one, the three categories is this. How a follower of Jesus should relate to the lost. How a follower of Jesus should relate to the, the elder son in the text. And how followers of Jesus should relate to those celebrating with God over the finding of that which was lost. So we as Christians, how do we, if you're a follower of Jesus, what does it look like to identify with those three categories of people? So first question, when we read the passage, did you identify with the lost? First question, when we read the passage, did you identify with the lost? Now, when we were first saved, typically uh, is the time when you most identify with those who don't follow, follow Jesus. Right? So when you first begin to follow Christ, it's, that's kind of the first time when you begin, you really identify with those who are not following Christ. Because essentially you just left that category of people. But then as time progresses, you begin to lose identification with them. And you begin to lose how to relate to them, uh, your identity with them. Now, this is good and bad. It's good because your identity is now in Christ and you're now being transformed into His image. It's bad because I think what we're going to see in this passage is that we begin to forget that which we came from. So, did you identify with the lost? And I mean that in kind of a couple different senses, but we'll flesh that out as we go. So we've seen clearly that Jesus spends a lot of time with the lost. We see that so far in Luke. He's with them all the time. He's getting in trouble for it. Look at verse 15, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 1 through 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now let me remind you real quick, tax collectors and sinners. First of all, the tax collectors, these were Jews they were essentially, that had essentially sided with the Romans in order to squeeze money out of the hands of the Jews. So they're kind of like seen as traitors. Uh, they also happened to look out most of the time for their own interest. So they would charge more money in addition to what was required of them by Rome in order to put money in their own pocket. Uh, now I'm sure greed and all those things set into place and uh, so they were not well-liked. I mean, these were, these were some of the most least likely, according to the Pharisees, some of the most least likely, like people that would, would, would follow Christ. But Jesus is hanging out with them. And then these sinners, those are probably, the, those I mean, he refers to, the tax collectors and sinners, is prob- the sinners category is probably those with moral or physical defect. 
Let me remind you that during this time, these defects, moral and physical, were understood as a result of sin. So they must not have the favor of God because of this. Or they must not have the favor of God and God, and we see that displayed in the fact that they have this defect. They understood these often as God's judgment on this person. One thing we see across all three stories, both the coin, the sheep, and the son, is the lostness of the object in the story. This is not something we probably think of when we look at the people around us, though, particularly outside this building. Like when we look at these stories, there is a clear, it is, it is obvious, this item, this person, this animal is lost. And that's a concern to Jesus in the story. And I just have to ask the question, do we think that way when we look around us? Does it come to our mind, the lostness of that which we look at? Now these three stories climax in Jesus describing the extreme lostness of the Son. So it's kind of a building of these two. The Son had total disregard for the Father. Think about this. His demand for His inheritance was essentially the same as saying to His Father, I wish you were dead. Now imagine, if you have kids, what that would be like. Father, I wish you were dead so that I could have my money now. Or imagine as a son, begin to try and imagine what that would be like to say to your father, I wish you were dead so I could go ahead and have my money now. So Jesus, there is no question about the lostness of the son. So we go back to the story, particularly the story of the son, now, the son, there's no indication here that this is like a greed issue. There's no indication that, that he's just greedy and wants his money for money's sake. Instead, I think he wanted the money so that he could find pleasure in other things. Money was just a means to an end. The money was something that would help him accomplish the pleasure that he was seeking. Now, the father gave him the money, and he ended up squandering it all very quickly. It says that he lost it. And he ended up working as a pig farmer. Now, like... Today, that may not seem like such a big deal to them. And so, I mean, think about this again, trying to paint the picture that Jesus is describing the lostness of the Son with, great, with a great deal of concern and care. Like he wants to point out to this that the dude was lost and see it. He was a pig farmer. He became a pig farmer for a Jew. This would be like the worst job in the world. Like if there was anything that said, you're unrighteous, God does not have favor on you, would be a Jew feeding pigs. This is terrible for him. And then Jesus doesn't just leave it at he's eating pigs, or feeding pigs rather. Instead, he says that, He wishes he could eat the food that the pigs were eating. Now, Jesus goes to great lengths, I think, here to describe the lostness of this person. And I would just pause for just a moment to ask us the question. Do we understand the lostness of that which we once were? Do we understand that? Begin to think about that as we work through this further. 
So the third story, again, with the son, as we work through this, begins to add the moral component to the stories. Notice in the, in the sheep and in the coins, there's no moral component. It's not they're doing sin, but that begins to happen in the third story. You see the sensuality, the wastefulness, the rejection of family. So we see the moral component added here. But then also notice throughout all three stories that they speak of hope. Notice the hope. See, just to talk about the judgment without the hope is, again, to not present the whole gospel. But here we see both the, both the lostness and we see the hope. In each case, there is the grace that that which is lost can be found. The coin was lost, but what happened? It was found. The sheep was lost, but what happened? It was found. The son was lost, but what happened? He was found. So even in Jesus' depiction of the lostness of the articles in the story, you also see on the other side of that the fact that they were all found. I think Jesus is drawing such a, an extreme picture of the sun here to show us that there is nothing that we can do from which God cannot save us. Here's a Jew feeding pigs, wishing that he could eat the very stuff that the pigs were eating. And he says, I'm not worthy to be my father's son anymore. Just make me a servant. And Jesus would say to us, it doesn't matter what you've done. My grace can cover that. I paid for that. I paid for that. Anything that comes to your mind, I paid for that. I paid for that. But just let the things come to your mind right now. Jesus paid for that. He paid for that. Right? The sin you did yesterday, maybe five minutes ago, He paid for that. There's nothing that is lost that cannot be found. The story is also the Excuse me. Also, the, seem to speak of those who were never lost. Those who are, didn't need to be found. Luke fifteen seven says, "Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous people who need no repentance." Wow, it's such a funny thing for Jesus to say. Fifteen thirty one, and he and he said to him, "Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is." yours. But this doesn't seem to jive with the rest of Jesus' teaching. There are those who don't need to repent. There are no such people. So what is... Now the Pharisees, though, thought that they did not need to repent. They thought that they had it together. They had these laws. They were obeying all these laws. I'm good to go. No need to repent. But Jesus said similar things early on. You can go back and look in Luke, but He says... It's not for the well he came, but for the sick, right? He also said he came to call the righteous, or call the unrighteous, not the, not the righteous. So Jesus is not saying that there are people who do not sin. I think he's saying that he came for those who realize they have sinned. Those who, who don't see themselves as perfect and in no need of salvation, but those who see themselves as imperfect. Perfect. He did not come for the, ultimately I think what's going on is he did not come for the self-righteous. He did not come for those who thought they were right with God because of what they were doing. 
but instead those who recognized they could never measure up to what God expected of them. So my question is this, a couple questions. Do you see yourself as lost? Like, Do you view yourself not identifying with the lost, but do you see yourself as lost? Are you tired? Weary? I mean, sin always lies about that which it will give you. It always overcommits and under delivers. Do you, when you read the story, do you identify with that? Which, do you feel lost? Is the weight of your own self-righteousness becoming too heavy for you to carry? If so, I would encourage you, even in this very moment, to confess your sins and turn from them and to Jesus. These stories are meant to be an invitation to you. An invitation saying, come, repent, turn to Christ. God, see guys, God is on mission gathering those who are lost. It is He that is seeking, even potentially you this very moment. Now as a Christian, if you consider yourself a follower of, a, a follower of Christ, we must understand two things. Number one, we were made in the image of God. Number two, by nature we have rebelled against God. So that... The God that we were made in His image, we have also rebelled against Him. So when we talk about you identifying with the lost, do you understand the nature of your once lostness and your tendency to head back to that direction? Do you see that? Do you feel that every day? If not, you become blind. Do you realize that? That you can head back that way any if we're going to effectively live out and proclaim the gospel as ones who follow Christ, then we must understand the reality of our experience. That lostness is a part of your experience and a part of my experience. This great, deep story that Jesus is talking about with the son who went all the way to the end of being a pig farmer, desiring the food, that lostness, that was you. It's just the story didn't look the same. If you don't understand what it is to be lost, then you will never know what it is to be found. And Christians, the thing, the thing is this, is as a follower of Christ, the further you drift away from remembering what it was to be lost, the further you drift away from remembering what it was like to be found. So for many of us, you don't know how to relate to the lost person because you've so forgotten the plight of your own self without God that you've begun to essentially live self-righteously. We can't relate to that person because we've forgotten what it's like to be lost without God. You've forgotten the pit that God rescued you from. And somehow now you think that you deserve where you're at. This is why, maybe why you don't share your faith, since you've forgotten what it's like, that it was God's accomplishment, that it was His miracle in rescuing you from that. If you don't share your faith, because I, I, I'm the one that accomplished this, I'm pretty good, you know? Now, we don't all set out to think that way. 
But when we don't take care to hear the word of God and we don't take care to foster repentance and dependence on God, then we begin to live as though we were never lost. And that somehow God has now benefited from me being a part of his team. The fact is God doesn't need you a part of his team. His team was complete, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Identifying with the law should bring about at least two things in our hearts. At least two things. One is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Do you ever find yourself just sitting there thanking God that He reached in to the pit of darkness and grabbed a hold of your soul and pulled it out? Do you ever just thank God for that? Thank God for that? Can you thank God for that? That God opened our eyes, that God opened your eyes to recognize your sin for what it was. So instead of sin as just being something that brings about bad consequences, to being sin that brings shame and dishonor to God. Do you ever thank God for the moment that He opened your eyes to see that? That God helped you to realize just who you were, a dreadful sinner in need of a wonderful Savior. Like, as the church, like, we talk about, like, unity in the body of Christ. You know where that, one of those places where that comes from? Like, where are the doctrine that should help, like, develop and foster a unity within the body of Christ? It's when we realize we all share that story. It's when we begin to forget that we share that story, that we begin to get self-righteous, prideful, selfish, but when we realize that we all share the same dreadful plight in the past and we all share the same awesome, miraculous work of God, that's where unity comes from. It doesn't come from singing the same songs, dressing the same way, having the same skin color. It comes from the same God who did the same miraculous work in each one of our lives. So one thing is thankfulness. Second thing is continual repentance. Identification with the law should bring about continual repentance. Repentance must be an ongoing aspect in our lives. My question, are, is your heart bent towards repentance or is it bent toward pride? Is your first response, oh, man, I'm going to have, yeah. I, I mean, it may not be an immediate, yeah, I see that, I send terrible, sorry. Uh, it might be, uh, I need to think. I need to think through that. I, I can see that, though. Or is it, nah. No, that was, that's not. Is it defensiveness? I mean, what is it? Repentance, continual repentance is a mark of continual salvation. Identifying with the law should also lead us to building relationships with them. Just talk about evangelism here for just a moment. Identifying with the law should lead us to building relationships with them. If you understand yourself as needing repentance, then you will help your lost friend understand their need for repentance. But if you don't understand your need for repentance, then you're never going to help them. For some of you, that's why you don't share your faith, because you don't understand your need for God. If you understand your need for God and their need for God, 
Now, for some of you, it's other reasons, but, but that might be where someone's at. We should strive to help people understand exactly where they are so they know where to go. If people don't understand their lostness, then they don't know where to go. So think about this. If you don't know where you're at, how can you get directions to the place across town? Now, you're saying, I just pull out my iPhone, I do locate, boop, 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 boop. I'm right here, directions too, right? All right, without your iPhone, if you don't know where you're at, how do you know where to go? I know, I think it's hard in a workplace. Hey, you're a sinner. You're terrible. Um, I mean, there might be some more wise ways to accomplish that same task. And you need to pray through that with your workplace. Uh, I have found, just as a, slight, a side note of encouragement, you know, I've found people know when their lives are messed up. And if you help them understand that mess up and what it is in reality, it's a reflection of their heart. It's something deeper than just this physical thing that's going wrong, whether it's their marriage, their parenting, their finances, whatever. Understand that it's something deeper in there. It's a much easier way than just coming into your thing like a, with a shotgun and saying, y'all a bunch of sinners, you know, uh, and just throwing the shot out there, you know. Uh, anyways, just some practical wisdom. All right, so do you identify with the loss? Secondly, do you identify with the elder brother? When we read the book, read the book, read the passage, did you identify with the elder brother? Do you identify with the elder brother? Now, just as the story was written for the lost, you know, as an invitation, those who knew they were lost, it was also written for the Pharisees and those who didn't realize that they were lost. Now, Jesus displays the Pharisees when he describes the older brother. I think when he gets to the older brother, he's talking about the Pharisees. Look at the Pharisees in 15.2. Let's, let's compare a couple verses here. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I mean, he sounds just like the Israelites in the wilderness grumbling about, well, we should just go back to Egypt because that, we were better off back in Egypt. And the Pharisees are doing the same. This man hands out with sinners and eats with them. Now we get to the older father in Luke 15.30 or the older brother, rather, but when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property of the prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. It's the same thing. Why are you hanging out with these sinners, Father? This, why are you doing this? This is when your son did this to your money. This sinner did this. Why are you hanging out with him? Why did you kill the fattened calf for him? He's unrighteous, Father. So the Pharisees resented the fact that Jesus hung out with those less seemingly less righteous than them. And the son resented the fact that his father was pleased to welcome his brother back, who was seemingly less righteous than him. You see the similarity. I think part of what's going on here is that the Pharisees viewed mercy as unrighteous. That because God would show mercy to someone, that this made God unrighteous. It appears that the elder son and the Pharisees both thought this way. The son has no joy in his, fa- in his brother's return. The son has no joy in his father's kindness. Why? Why does the son not have joy in his father's kindness towards his brother? Why do the Pharisees find no joy in Jesus' kindness towards sinners? Why do you not show kindness to those around you when they mess up? Why would people leave a church when someone says something they shouldn't or acts in a way that they shouldn't? Why not show them mercy or kindness? 
It's ultimately because the Pharisees, the Son, and all of us in our self-righteousness, we forget the Father's kindness towards us. In our self-righteousness, in their self-righteousness, we forget. Again, we're getting so far away from, from what we were saved from that we begin to forget that God rescued us. He found us. He's the one that was looking for the coin and found you. And we begin to think that we are somehow where we're at because of our own doing. We have so lost sight of our utter dependence on the righteousness of Jesus that we fail to see God's continued kindness towards us. So that same grace that it took to save you the moment that you were justified is the same grace that you need now to continue working out your salvation and sanctification. And when we forget that, then we begin to believe that we have somehow reached this. But instead, if we understand that if we're continuing in our walk with Christ, that that is still God's kindness. That is still God's mercy on you and me. Now, I'm not talking here about losing our salvation. I believe that if you're a follower of Christ, that God guarantees that perseverance. But when we get to Hebrews, I think those warning passages in there are very legitimate for us. Warnings of apostasy, of giving up the faith. I heard a sermon by John Piper, if you know him. He preached it together for the gospel a couple years ago. And and his sermon, one of his main points with his sermon, or it might have even been the sermon topic or title, but was, I'm surprised that I'm still a follower of Jesus. Now, for a man like that to say that after that many years, for me, he goes, wow, I really need to consider that thought. So, our continued faith is, again, God's kindness. And we forget that. So, the issue is not that mercy is related to unrighteousness. It's that the ones grumbling about this mercy being given don't realize that the mercy that's been shown them. I think, ultimately, in the Pharisees' case, because... God has not shown them mercy because they are self-righteous. You know, it's ironic in this passage that the same rejection of God that led the younger brother to self-pursuit of pleasure, that same rejection of God led the older brother to self-righteous legalism. If you're not a Christian, if you don't, again, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ or not sure about that, the Pharisees and the, and the elder son are the ones who thought that their righteousness was so good that they didn't need to repent. And so my question, if you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ or you know you're not, my question is this, is your righteousness something that you are confident in? If God was to look at your righteousness, would it be enough for him to say, welcome into heaven? Is it good enough for God to accept you? Now, I bet that righteousness that you're trying to carry is getting pretty heavy and burdensome. Jesus would tell you, give it up because it will never succeed. Give up your self-righteousness and submit to Christ's righteousness. Now, if you're a Christian, do you relate to the elder son? You should continually reflect on your life asking God to reveal where you are being self-righteous. This is such a danger for us. Then, where you are not seeing the graciousness of God 
towards you. Like ask him, where am I not seeing your kindness towards me? Where am I not recognizing this? And you probably struggle with having patience towards maybe that certain person or the situation because you think that you don't need Jesus yourself. This is what this self-righteousness begins to lead us to. It begins to lead us to not acting like Jesus, but to acting completely different. The self-righteousness ultimately is hypocrisy because you think and act like you're someone that you're not. So if I begin to think that I'm righteous enough on my own, I'm beginning to think that I'm someone that I am not. That's the height of hypocrisy. Ultimately, because you cannot maintain righteous, a righteous heart apart from the gospel, it simply is, becomes a performance on the outside. We begin to just, it becomes just a facade. We live this way so people think that I'm holy. I would warn you, beware of enjoying the externals of religion without the heart. Where is your heart at? Let me ask you this question. How would your life change this week if instead of putting all of your energy into looking holy, you put that energy into actually being holy? How would your life change this week? Instead of acting holy, you put that energy into actually being holy. Now, I would give us a warning to us at this point as a church that values church membership and a church that practices church discipline. The warning is this. It's very tempting for us to simply act holy instead of genuinely striving for holiness. That's a big warning for us. Now, the ultimate problem here is the fact that we are tempted to think of ourselves as something that we're not. We can begin to believe our own publicity. Our, our own sins are elusive to us. I mean, the younger son recognized his sin. Now, I think there's theological explanations for why that happened that we don't have time for today. But the younger son recognized his sin and repented of it. But the older son was oblivious. And I would just encourage us to be aggressive with your sin. Be aggressive with it. Now, here's a test to see at least the shadow of your sin as it relates to self-righteousness and mercy. Here's a question. Is it easier for you to conceive of God saving you than it is for God saving someone that you've been praying for for a while? When you think of that person in your life that needs Jesus, is it, do you think, wow, man, it was easier for God to save me than it is for Him to save that person there? Really? I mean, what kind of self-righteousness is that? I mean, I've thought these things. I've repented of these things too. Or when you hear about some public figure caught in sin, do you find it utterly incomprehensible? I mean, is your first action self-righteous? If we know the capability of our own hearts, then we will sadly be more familiar with the sin than we would like to admit. You see what I'm saying? Like, we become so self-righteous that when someone does that, we just like, oh my gosh, like that's terrible. I could never do that. Really? Really? Because your heart could still do that. Yeah. But then we become like, ah, uh, you know, I'm above that. You know, maybe the, maybe the guy in Cleveland, when you heard of the dude in Cleveland that had the three girls for ten years, were your thoughts, I could never do that? Really? 
I think we need to pray for a couple things for us. One is that God would give us a fresh sense of our own sin. That He would just help give us a fresh sense of our sin. And secondly, that we would have a fresh sense of His grace. Right? Some of us don't like enjoy and love the grace of God because we just don't see how much we need it. But when we see how much we need it, then we get to experience how much it is to enjoy it. He didn't leave us in that. But if we know the depth of our depravity, then we understand the miraculous and the extent of His grace. Save us from that. Like, like this way you get to really enjoy the grace because you're like, oh my God, that was me. But this is me now. Right? That was me. <laughs> that was, most of us go, wow, that was me. And, oh, cool, God's grace. That was me. I ran away. Squandered all my father's stuff. <sighs> but he took me home. He brought me back. He saved me. Right? I mean, I think part of our journey with Christ is, at least in part, discovering the depth of our depravity so that we know the depth of His mercy. Right? Depth of mercy can it be. Right? Thirdly, do you identify with the ones celebrating and rejoicing with God? Do you celebrate with the ones, do you identify with the ones celebrating and rejoicing with with God. That is my son. <laughs> More than anything else in these stories is the joy of the Father in seeing that which was lost is now found. That is kind of the ultimate in this story. The other two are very applicable. These, this one we get to is kind of like the crux, I think. Luke 15, 5 through 7. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who think that they need no repentance. I added a couple words there. Luke 15, 9 through 10. And when she, was, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I mean, just ponder for a moment with me, just for a second. We do not have a God who cares little about us being saved. Think about what he's saying here. The joy that is experienced in heaven when one lost person repents. When God grabs a hold of that coin and pulls it out of the deep darkness that is behind the couch or the sheep that wandered to a far away land. We have a God that delights in seeing sinners saved, even just one person. Let's look at the third story, the son, right? He squanders everything and the son repents and returns home. Luke 15, verse 19, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I mean, do you understand during this time period, the, the intensity of that statement? Like for them, sonship is like everything. So for him to say, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, 
It's a huge deal. I mean, that, I think, gives way to describing or is indicative of the son understanding the depth of his depravity, of what he had just done. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still long off, what happens? His father saw him. He felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Understand this, guys. For the father to get up and run like that would have not been culturally acceptable. What Jesus is doing, he's painting the picture of the extreme joy that the father has in his son returning. The extreme excitement and the compassion that he has. The, the running would have lacked dignity. But instead, what happens? He takes off. He runs. He meets him even when he was far away off. Then verse 23 through 24. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. When questioned by the older son, what does he respond in 23, I'm sorry, in verse 32? It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And I think we have to ask the question at this point. How can a righteous God celebrate like this? I mean, how can, a, how, how can a righteous God celebrate over this? I mean, does he just brush over sin? Does he work out some sort of complicated math formula between holiness and his love? You know, just kind of working the magic to, to make this happen? I, I mean, I, I know we spend so much time, like, in our culture, seeming like debating over the creation of the world. Let's debate about how a loving God could save dreadful sinners. Now that's a math formula or a scientific equation that isn't going to make sense. How does God do that? I mean, God desires to save His own. He, how could all this happen? And I don't have time to, to dive into all this. We'd be here for hours. But, but very simply, by substitution, someone has to die to pay the price for that sin. By our punishment becoming his and by his righteousness becoming ours. Jesus' death, he bears our unrighteousness and the punishment for it so that we can then bear his righteousness. If that doesn't strike you, I don't know. Wow. His righteousness, ours. Talk about it. Well, I'll just leave it at that because God rejoices in saving and and saving sinners, he is expressing something of his righteousness. So if you're not a Christian, let me ask you this question. What brings you joy? Whatever it is, if it's not God, eventually it'll leave you empty. It will run out eventually. Now today, you can bring God great joy by repenting of your sins and trusting in the work of Jesus. It will bring God great joy. God cares about you. Hebrews 12 says this, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It was for joy that he did that. Joy was Christ's motivation that he endured the cross for our salvation. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, think about that. Have you ever questioned God's love for you? Like, Jesus says for joy, he endured the cross for us. Now, Christians... Both sons sought to find joy in the things of this life. The younger son through the worldly pleasures. The older son through self-righteousness. The older son, however, 
seem to be oblivious to his self-righteousness. He seems to continue on feeling as though his servitude is that which will bring him the most joy. So it's the son saying, but I've served you faithfully. The son is saying, it's my, it's what I've done that has kept me in your favor, father. And the father, when he says, you've always been with me, is he saying, well, son, you have always faithfully served me and you've always done all the right things. Is that what the father says? No, he says, you've always been with me. You've always been with me. It's not, you've always been with me because you've done this, 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 and this. You've always been with me. There is no self-righteousness there. It's not because you've done these things. At the end of the day, the younger son, though, realized his pleasure would never satisfy him. He discovered that the only thing left at the end of this road was God himself. In the story, the father. So he repented and ran back. Then we see the father respond with great joy. We see the father leaving the tradition of dignity behind to run to the son. We see him celebrate the repentance of his son. Do you identify with God's celebration over the salvation of those lost? Or have you so gotten wrapped up into your self-righteousness that you've forgotten the miraculous gift and graciousness of salvation? Do you identify with God's celebration over those? If you see the great need for God to act in your life to bring about salvation, then you will see the natural celebration that should come forth from that. If you see the glory that God gets in His salvific work, then you will see the natural celebration again that comes forth from that. So I want to encourage us, if you're a follower of Christ, do you identify with the lost? Have you so forgotten that? Do you identify with the elder son and that you've become so self-righteous that you've forgotten that it was God who rescued you? And then in forgetting those things and not understanding how to think through those things, you have you've now forgotten just how much celebration is due over your salvation and continued working out of that salvation and the salvation of new people who are lost. God reaching in and grabbing them out. So let's celebrate with God as we, as He has so graciously reached into so many of our lives and redeemed us from sin. Can we celebrate about that? Can we do that? Do that in our own lives. Do that together as a church. If you're a follower of Christ, there's something to celebrate. I mean, I know like today's sermon has been a little bit of Debbie Downer, but you know, like sometimes we have to do that to recognize again the depth of our depravity so we can celebrate the depth of His mercy and the depth of His kindness and grace towards us. Some of us have been Christians for 30, 40 years or 20 years and 10 years and we've forgotten just what it meant for God to rescue us. Let's not forget that, church. Let's remember that. Let's remember every day. Ask God to help us see, help us to relate to the fact that we were once lost and have now been found to recognize that we can be given to self-righteousness the further we get away from remembering that lostness. And then as we move away from that, we forget, and, and forget to celebrate, and we don't realize the celebration that should be taking place in our own lives for the salvation of God in our lives, salvation of us in our lives, and the salvation done by God in other people's lives. And when we talk about salvation, let's make sure that we don't do it man-centered, 
Let's do it talking about God. I would encourage you, when you talk about someone getting saved, it's, it's God rescuing them. It's God saving them. It's God redeeming them. It's God's work. He gets all the glory for it, not us. So, I want to pray. I want to sing We Rejoice. It's a very fitting song, I think, as we talk about the celebration of this uh, passage. So I want to uh, let's pray, and the band will come up. We'll sing and reflect on this. Father, thank you for your words. Father, you are so gracious to us, even in this past hour. So gracious to reveal to us truths that should change our lives and change our hearts. And Father, I pray that the truths that have been spoken here from your word, that they would sink deeply into your people's hearts. And the words that are not true to your words, if there are any, Father, this morning, that they would be burned up. And Father, that your, that your people would walk away knowing, knowing that what they have been saved from and what they have been saved to and what they have been saved by. And Father, if there's anyone that's not a follower of Christ today, Father, or they're questioning that, Father, I pray that you would just help them to understand the plight of their current situation, the need for a Savior, that they cannot earn it themselves, that they would place their trust and belief on the work of Jesus Christ, your Son. And then, Father, I pray that you would encourage them, whether they sort that out right now or need help sorting that out, that they would seek someone like myself or Rusty or someone else in this church to help them work through that. Father, it is not a thing we want to put off. So, Father, in these very moments, I pray that you would draw people closer to you, those who are lost, that you would help them understand their need for Jesus. And those who are saved, that they would again understand their need for Jesus. Father, um, thank you that we can celebrate. We can celebrate your kindness and your graciousness to us, towards us. Father, we do not stand here, if, you're, if we're a follower of Jesus, we do not stand here condemned, but we stand here righteous. And for that, Father, we rejoice. And Father, it's in your Son's most precious, holy, kind, gracious name that we pray. Amen. Shall you all stand with us as we worship this morning?